That's live. That is up. Ah, there we go. Ah, there we go. There we are. Ah, mm. uh, hello everyone. Roll and roll and roll and roll and what? We're roll and roll and roll and roll and what? One day Limp Biscuit will answer for 9-11, I hope. In the cosmic plane, if not on this one, eventually there will be some reckoning for the irresponsible role they had in calling down the cosmic forces that led to 9-11 and then the war in Iraq and the war on terror. Hi, guys. It's very rainy today. It's uh, the tropical depression or whatever. Today is the day. It finally happened. It's been very annoying because I never know how to plan my stuff and what to do because I'm always waiting for the rain to come and it has not come. And now it's finally happening. It's raining. But this weekend is going to be nice, they say, which is bad news for the NYPD. We'll be out there. Don't know where yet, but we will see. But I want to keep doing the uh, streams. And when it gets nice again, as I've promised, girl stream incoming. But right now it's literally raining at the moment. And I was thinking, since this feels for me anyway like a moment that's sort of suspended in many time in this moment of tumultuous shifts, I'm not inside, it's raining. Time to do what I like to do best, which is look backwards. So I was figuring instead of commenting on what's happening right now in, in any way, specifically like we're starting off with some sort of uh, dissertation on of the events of the day or the week, uh, I was thinking that maybe we could talk history. Historical parallels, moments, moments that rhyme, as George Lucas would say, moments that people want to talk about. So uh, I'm going to start sort of by asking anybody on the stream, anybody in the comment section who wants to drop a question, what questions do they have? And I'll see if I can answer them, or at least talk through them and around them about historical moments that, that they uh, find resonant in the current moment. Uh, so let's see what we got. I won't be able to talk about all these, of course, because I don't know that much about that much. 1848 is the first one someone says, and 1848 is a good one to start with, uh, because 1848 was a very similar situation uh, in that it was the unplanned, spontaneous explosion of a long-simmering uh, resentment and dissatisfaction around uh, a very sudden and dramatic shift in material conditions in two ways. One, you had the rise of uh, industrial uh, capitalism, which was driving people to uh, uh, sooty, miserable conditions in cities. And also, even more importantly, because at this point, there still weren't that many industrial capital workers. There weren't that many laborers yet as a percentage of the population in, in cities. They created comp competition and conflict with the dwindling and uh, uh, under siege artisan class. Uh, and then... So you had this shift in the mode of production and the way people uh, 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 work. Very similar to the way, it, it was sort of the first rung on the ladder of, of coercive rearrangement of working conditions. Because before the mid-1800s, there was so much land in common that there was always an ability to, if all else failed, subside, subsist on the land which gave you bargaining power in any specific job that was greater uh, than the ability of the, of the boss to get you to work for them. If they weren't paying you enough, you could say fuck off and grow turnips. Of course, the enclosure acts, all that, we all know that was gone by the, by the mid-1800s. So people were being forced into labor arrangements and wage relationships. And that the artisan class, the, the individual uh, self-employed manufacturer, uh, which was sort of a legacy of feudalism, is, was still a prevalent uh, uh, employment in cities, but it was very uh, precarious is the thing. And there were a lot of very poor artisans. Like there were the poor artisans drove the French Revolution, and there were still plenty of poor artisans in cities throughout Europe in 1848. Uh, but then even the rich artisans were, were uh, in conflict with the state over the uh, shift towards free markets away from industrial, uh, from local protectionism and the dropping of tariffs that made home crafts less, 
uh, less competitive in the market. And so there was this pressure on people to behave, to, uh, to, to work in different ways, to be more coerced into labor, to have less control over their own working lives. Uh, parenthetically, people always like to talk about, well, what, because so much of our understanding of politics because of neoliberalism and, and, and capitalist ideology shaping our responses, even our alienation from it, we tend to go to standpoint a lot when we talk about ideas. And so obviously people want to talk about podcasters on the left. What are you? You're not working class, especially if you're making a, a decent amount of money from it. Uh, and it's like, no, podcasters, specifically anyway, us, uh, podcasters like us who work, uh, uh, who get money from directly from their listeners, we're artisans. We are, we are those, the, like the guy making, uh, 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 making like stockings in his house. Like that's us. It's, it's, it's a pre-capitalist mode of production. Or, uh, 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 and that's still embedded. So even now that's still embedded within capitalism because nothing is totalizing. But anyway, there was this push away from that self, that degree of alien, of, of control over one's work. Like even if you weren't making money, even if you were poor, you still had control of your own working conditions, which is means you were less alienated than somebody who had to work in a factory at the direction of somebody else. But you were being pushed in that direction. People were being pushed in that direction. So you, just the way now, after that has been totalized, after wage labor became totalized under capitalism, eventually, though, the deal broke down where the initial deal of, okay, you'll work for me and that'll be it and you, I will be your employer and we will have a direct relationship, employer-employee, and then after the rise of working less, okay, and maybe you'll have a labor union or something or you'll be a manager and you'll have more control of your life. Well, after the 70s crisis, after the terminal decline of capitalism, after it became harder and harder to bring profits out of old business models, all of a sudden they wanted you to not work directly for anyone. They wanted people to all be contractors, being hired for specific jobs that require that in, involves and uh, suggests no extended relationship, no duty between the two, or only one one duty in one way. Uh, you you owe your uh, employer your surplus labor, and that's it. Your labor power. That's it. That's all you owe them, and they don't owe you anything. At least, and in and in the the American sort of uh, labor capitalist. Um, treaty, the, the, the detente that happened after World War II and that persisted and was never let down by labor, by the way, it was only let down by capital slowly and behind their backs, uh, there was a relationship. There is an implied responsibility of an employer, uh, but that costs money. And now they're trying to squeeze that out of the economy. Every job basically made since the economic collapse of 2008 has been some sort of short-time, part-time, or gig job. That's almost all of them. Not even exaggerating that. You can look it up. That you are literally reproducing one type of employment with another that is even more alienated and more threadbare and more precarious than the one before it, which is the same pressure that was operating in 1848. But at the same time, you have that. Instead of it just being that, like if that is a company economic growth, that sort of smooths it, smooths it away because it pays you back. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're more alienated now, but you also make more money. And there's more stuff to buy, and there's a general rise in uh, 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 you know, living standards and happiness, and you're kind of being buoyed up, and it's okay that you're being alienated more from control of your workplace or control of your labor hours. But in 1848, there had been a prolonged, sustained, uh, continent-wide uh, uh, agricultural crisis. Uh, the potato famine that people remember from Ireland did not just affect Ireland. It affected the entire. It, it, it affected the entire continent of Europe, uh, and it essentially decimated peasant uh, ability to, to to live all throughout the continent. But in addition to that, there were all. It was also severely cold, harsh summers because this was the tail end of the Little Ice Age, uh, and they. And there was huge failures of crops all throughout the staple crop uh, uh, fields of Europe. Which, of course, caused in the cities massive rises in costs of everything, specifically foodstuffs. And that meant that poor people couldn't eat and wealthier people were spending more of their money on food. Everybody was pissed off. So you're, gaining, you're losing control of your workplace and you're not even getting any money for it. You're getting paid money that is worth less because you have to spend more of it on the food that you, could, you have to eat no matter what. That's an inelastic uh, good. 
And now what do we see now? We see this exact same slow motion and reinsurfment going along with the collapse of the economy. Literally all those gig jobs not even existing anymore. And so what happens? A spark lights off a explosion of resentment that is seen by others and it spreads throughout the continent. Now, of course, you wouldn't have to guess where the where revolutions of 1848 started. They had to start in the place that was continental Europe's first revolutionary uh, crucible. I mean, this is, this is why history is so great, you know? Like, you, if you read about the French Revolution, and then you say, okay, so that happened, and then there was the continent-wide reaction, and then Louis got, uh, the Bourbons got reinstalled, and then you could ask that person, all right, and then 1848, later on, if they didn't know anything about European history, you go, in 1848, things pop off again. Where do you think it started? Where did it start last time? France, the most populous uh, uh, country, a country that was not developing economically with the insane uh, speed of the UK, uh, and that did not have uh, the UK's uh, imperial resources to fall back on either, I might add. Uh, feeling all the worst effects of, of change and very little of the benefits. Boom. And, and, a, and a tradition of, of, of successful revolutionary action. You're going to go out in the streets, more likely to go out in the streets if it, you know it's worked. I mean, that's, I think, why so many people are paralyzed now and so many people want to go to the computer to find a reason not to go out and not to support, not, not even, to even not even support the demonstrations because you don't want to be disappointed. And you look at that, you go like, oh, like, look at the record of, of, of these things. They don't work. So this isn't going to work either. But of course... That depends on how many people are involved and how people respond to, change, to the conditions and the reactions of the state and things like that. So in France, one of the reasons revolutions kept working, one of the reasons they were so effective, one of the reasons the way they were able to re-overthrow the Bourbons after they were installed and then overthrow the Orleanists was because they knew going out worked and so they went out more and they were more likely to do it and more likely to stay out. And so... Everybody in Europe saw the flames rise in Paris, and what do you know? Everywhere people were pissed, they threw up the goddamn barricades. But because it was a spontaneous revolt that had no coordination, that was essentially carried out by the same, uh, the same class of people everywhere, but everywhere, but distinctly separated, meant that there was no unified purpose behind it. Um, so in France, the main art demands were for the overthrow of, uh, of the Orleanists and the, the institution of a republic and, and the right to work for industrial workers, which included artisans who were not being uh, engaged for labor in an oppressed uh, economy. Uh, in the German cities, it was those things, but more importantly than any of them, the thing that they thought was necessary to get any of them, a, a unified German state. Now, we might look back on that and say, you know what, you guys really uh, you guys really need to look back on your math. Someone fucked up big time. Because, you know, God love them. Everybody thought that was a good idea at the time. Even Marx. But looking back, ooh, unifying Germans turns out not to be a great idea. There's a little too much blood and thunder in that line. I don't know. I think it's something about the language. The language has a sort of, uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a mystic bloody-mindedness to German. It's all those compound words. Uh, they should be separated, is all I'm saying. The, like, the bishoprics and stuff, and the prince duchess, those, that was a guy who elect, uh, palantine, the, you know, uh, margraves and landgraves and shit. That was a better scenario. Uh, unifying that. But anyway, they thought that, they thought the only way we're gonna get anything is if we get rid of this patchwork of stupid fucking fiefdoms with, you know, uh, individual... Uh, royal families and, and duchies and, and, uh, and archbishops, all of whom were reactionary, all of whom commanded greater or lesser degrees of absolutist control over their populations, unite under one enlightened constitutional monarch. And the thing is, is they weren't wrong in seeing that as a worthwhile goal. The same way that the United States now, in a similar situation, is wildly hindered uh, by... Uh, wildly hindered by federalism. 
wildly because I mean I we don't have the same worry about being unified because we're already there and we're already doing you know we're already doing a terrible job but like there, it's clear at this point that the states aren't helping anything so and by the way I'm not being a, a linguistic determinism is, is or idealism languages are the way they are because of the, the surroundings the actual environment that the people who developed the languages uh, existed in so they are an imprint from a specific physical moment in space and time. So that's what they're carrying with them. The language is just a marker and a reinforcer of it. And over time, it gains power, especially as uh, the original conditions are less and less there to reinforce. They reinforce on their own, but they, st and they, they have an effect, okay? They're, nothing is as simple. Base superstructure, these ideas are not as simple as they appear. Because they are also, at a certain point, they become reinforcing uh, uh, feedback loops that require one another. And that if one wasn't there, it wouldn't hap operate the same way. But anyway. In Italy, they wanted Italian unification. Uh, in, the in, the, in, the, in the Austrian uh, Empire, uh, the, the, the sort of the rump remnant of the Holy Roman Empire uh, that wasn't totally uh, severed by Napoleon, they, the individual nationalities wanted their own goddamn, uh, they wanted their own places. The Hungarians wanted their own country. The, the, the Bohemians wanted their own country. Um, and so all of these revolts happened without really any coordination. Uh, they forced the hands of their governments. They were, there was initial capitulation. And then eventually uh, reactionary forces just waited uh, for one thing, for the urban middle class to sell out the workers, which they did very quickly, because they weren't as interested in a social revolution. They wanted uh, just political reforms to reflect the Enlightenment values that had become pervading in the middle classes. Uh, and then, once the working class had sort of been demobilized by uh, disillusionment, and all that was left were essentially the students and some of the wealthier uh, artisans, they rolled them up. And so there's plenty of reason to see parallels between 19, uh, 1848 and now. Uh, the same spontaneity, the same uh, lack of a coherent organizing principle, but I think there are also significant differences. And one of them is that nationalism, at least the way that it uh, affected those uh, conflicts, is no longer relevant in this era. I think the closest thing you could say uh, would hold the place for nationalism as in a thing that is within the move, um, a movement that is, uh, that is potentially a conflict point is uh, race. Uh, and, but the, the good news is, is that all of these different revolts that happen in Europe, their geographic location discreetly uh, is what uh, reproduce their separation. Uh, you know, you had the Czechs in Prague, you had the Hungarians in Budapest, you know, you had the, the Romans in, uh, the Italians in, in Rome and Florence and stuff. And so that, they were separated literally by geography, and so coordination was rendered impossible, as, and because those goals were also either, sometimes were in conflict with one another, or were um, totally irrelevant to one another. Like, for example, the Hungarians wanted an independent Hungarian state, but there was also an overwhelming demand for Hungarian to be the, uh, the presiding language of Hungary. But the problem is Hungary was also multinational, and there were a bunch of Croats and, uh, and Serbs um, in the territory of Hungary, uh, Moldovans, who didn't want to fucking speak Hungarian. And so that created a civil war within the, within the war itself. But... In this case, that, that racial divide is reproduced inside every city and inside every movement, which means that if it's going to be resolved, it can be resolved at the actual point of contact, which is a very good sign. Uh, yes, the Croats are actually the ones who rolled up the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, Ban Jelicic, shout out to him. I saw a uh, 
statue of him and when I was in Croatia. A five-star pimp, if ever there was one. Because it's, cause it, that is why class is so important, and that's why economic issues are important if anyone wants to win. Because think about the Croats, right? The Croats were also subjects of the Austri Austrian Empire. They want, there, was an, there was Croatian nationalism. There was a sense of Croatian identity. Uh, but also, they were part, uh, they were under the subsequent heel of the Hungarians. So when the Hungarians say, we want to be independent of Austria, we want an independent Hungarian-speaking country, uh, what is their appeal to the, the Croats to get them to, instead of taking the orders of the, of the emperor and crushing them, uniting with them? What do they give a shit? In fact, that's directly in conflict with their desires. There has to be something that can commonly unify everyone who is in a position of, uh, of oppression to uh, push together. And that requires empathy, but it also requires self-interest because they should not and don't have to be at odds. They can and must, in fact, be together. Self-interest and, and altruism need to be uh, unified. One of the big problems with the fact that so much of the left is wealthy and, and operates from a sense of morality is that for wealthier people, uh, the, the reverse is true. In fact, they don't feel that they are operating politically unless they are operating selflessly. Their morals require self-abnegation to operate because they have money, because they're not oppressed. And so to the degree that they run things is the degree to which they're not going to be necessarily interested in alleviating anything, not only one, at, at the material level, because they benefit from the arrangement, but two, from the psychic um, uh, level, that they develop, they, they derive their sense of uh, good conscience from the fact that they are, that they give their money for people who don't have it and that they vote for people who will take money from them for people who don't have it or whatever, or uh, that, that they care about issues that affect other people. That's what makes them good. And that is, I mean, you can have people like that following the train, as the, as the lower bourgeois always will, but they can't be in charge. So that is why if there, we have any hope right now, it is that this movement coalesces around issues of radical redistribution. And I really do feel like, I don't agree with anyone who says that, oh, this has icky ID Paul all over it, therefore it can't work. That's idealism. That's, that's what happens when you spend all your time online. Everything exists as these frictionless categories that never interact, and they're totally polarized because you're engaging in, exclusively in, uh, in anti-dialectical, polarizing uh, uh, di uh, dialogue with one another, that you say, oh, it's, it's got the icky stuff on it, it's therefore icky, it can't be good. That is, that is the delusional idealism of online argumentation. If these things will be resolved, they will be resolved on the ground. And, and as much as anything else that challenges the pervading order, I mean, are you going to tell me that fucking policing is not a significant part of the global capitalist order? And yes, of course, the danger exists. The danger, of course, exists that this all ends with the police being defunded and it just means that Bezos builds Robocop or something or that there's a black water in the streets. Obviously, that's a fucking possibility. But that was going to happen anyway. We're on the slide for that. This might accelerate it, but it's also the only thing that can interrupt the, cons the, the, the prospect, that can interrupt the, 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 the inexorable movement towards that inevitability. You're not saying anything by saying, oh, a bad thing could happen because of this. No shit! Bad things are basically all that happen. The question is, do you look at the thing in front of you, the thing that actually emerged from these actual conditions, as opposed to something you imagine might can, uh, emerge in conditions that aren't real, they're in your head, then I don't know what the fuck I can tell you. Because that's the only thing that's going to stop the slide. That's the only thing that's going to interdict this avalanche. And if, if it does end with defunded police but funded fucking uh, Blackwater uh, the security agents, well then, then we fucked up somewhere. And then we can s correct the fuck up in the future. That's always what it is. The idea that there is some victory you can have that is untainted and complete, that's insane. That, that's literally, uh, that's millennialism. That's, that's, that's eschatological utopian madness. 
And it's only possible because you're thinking of these things as discrete battles. You're thinking of everything as a discrete event that is unconnected to reality because that's how you can think about something. You have to disentangle it from its context, right? Or else you can't look at it. Otherwise, it's embedded. But in real life, everything is embedded. And so you can't know until you find out. And so you have to find out. Sorry, but you have to. There's no way you can reason yourself into saying that I'm going to stay behind the computer. Because if you are, you're looking for a reason to stay behind the computer. And that means that you don't actually care about politics. You care about being on the computer. And talking about politics is one of the things that makes it fun to be on the computer. So ask yourself that. Look yourself in the mirror and say, do I really care about any of this political stuff? Or do I really like, basically because I don't know what else to do with my time, I don't have a thing that I can invest in that will, that I have any promise will give me back any psychic pleasure. This is the thing I know makes me feel good. And I know that like politics is like one of the, like, I, I just eating from a big internet stew every day and it's different seasonings. And so, like, the salt and pepper are politics and video games. And the fucking, uh, the, the garlic is, uh, is pornography. Uh, well, this, the, the, actually, the broth is pornography. Who are we kidding? And, essentially, I like, I like this, I like this delicious pozole or whatever it is. And, and, and one of the things that gives it taste is the emotional zing I get from arguing about politics. And if that wasn't there, the soup wouldn't taste as good. I wouldn't want to eat as much of it. And since I don't have anything else to eat, then I want my soup to taste as good as possible. And that might be, that's a lot of people. And the thing is, that's okay. I don't blame anyone for that. I am not trying to make having political opinions the sum total of someone's morality. That is what the internet tells you to do. I don't judge anyone for that. I don't judge anyone for trying to cope with this world however they can. But don't fucking think that you're doing politics at the end of the day. You're seasoning your goddamn soup. And if you're okay with that, that's okay. But don't lie to yourself. Because it'll only make it harder for you. You'll only be more miserable. But maybe you're not. Maybe you'll like being miserable. Maybe you're a sicko. And of course, this applies to everybody. Everyone's eating the soup when they're on the internet. It's just a question of how much time are you spending eating the soup. I, of course, love eating the soup. That's the reason I love politics, because it's a delicious zing, because it gives me a sense of purpose and, and, I, and I, uh, virtue and identity and, uh, and, uh, and discernment. But I also know that it is not a meal. It's a fantasy meal to, to get way too involved with the metaphor. So the question is, How, how real is it to you? And it will be to a degree. Commitment is to by degree. But there are also those inflection points. And if you have decided, I'm going to ignore, condemn, or mock from a position of superiority and superior knowledge this uh, uprising or whatever it is, then you have made that choice. You have, internet is the, the... That's your entire uh, food stuff. Is that fucking... Is the chunky soup of the internet... And that you really love those, you love that politics. You love them, oh, you get that in there. Oh, you get that politics in there, in that gumbo. Oh, mon ami, oh, mano, you get that. I tell you right now, you like my gumbo, that's fine. But if I put that politics in that gumbo, oh, my God, oh, mon ami. You're going to slap your mama. Because she voted for Trump. All right, so that was 1848. Anybody got another one? Uh, it was 1917, I believe they meant, uh, a function of revolutionary success or the weakness of the regime. I think it's pretty clear that the Russian Revolution succeeded because the fact that uh, Russia was not a modern state. Um, like, the creation of a modern economy doesn't only create alienation the way Marx saw it, it also creates accommodation and, uh, and co-optation within a system over time. And I think that's something you underestimated. 
just because he was not alive to see it carry out. It's one of those things where you can't even say he was wrong. You can just say he lived at a place in time and then he wasn't alive anymore. That's not a criticism. It's just an observation. Uh, but Russia, even though it had the utterances and a lot of the uh, capacity of a modern state, in its real uh, self was not. It was a medieval. It was a medieval society that had that had the 20th century drop in its lap in the form of the Eastern Front, and so that meant that it was much easier to overcome resistance because resistance was essentially just coming from a, a, a inbred fucking royal family and a small uh, layer of civil servants, and everybody else was either a small number of workers and then a bunch of disinterested to alienated peasantry. That's not, that's not, that doesn't describe any contemporary culture, any contemporary society. Huh. Somebody asked about the Iranian Revolution. Uh, that, that, Iranian Revolution is always a really good warning call for the left because it is often forgotten, but that was originally a popular... Uh, uprising that involved a lot of leadership from the urban left wing, the, the Communist Party and like radical students, and that over time they slowly were removed from power, isolated, and then eventually massacred by the uh, Islamists uh, headed by uh, Khomeini. And so keep your head on a swivel. Ah, the Easter Rising. Easter Rising is a lot like John Brown's Raid in that it's a good reminder for people who fixate on the efficacy of action. Now, you don't want to do things that might backfire worse, but I think a lot of people talk themselves into thinking that they support things, they oppose things because they think the backlash will be worse than doing nothing. But a lot of it boils down to they don't want to risk their lives for something that's not going to succeed or doesn't have a chance to succeed. And I think both John Brown's raid and the Easter Rising were conceived by men uh, who did not expect them to work. They did not, in both, I mean, uh, Patrick Pierce said as much. He said that what is required was a blood sacrifice. I mean, of course he said that. He was a Catholic mystic psycho. Whistled on his way to the, ex, uh, to the firing squad. But they accept, but they were also recognitions that only some sort of dramatic interaction with the status quo was going to shake the, uh, the, the stalemate open and break out of an unsustainably, of a morally unsustainable situation. And they were both right. They all died, but they were both, they were all right. Because within 10 years of both of those acts, there was a Free Ireland, although obviously it was still part of the Commonwealth, but it was on its way to being free. The Queen wasn't on the money anymore. And slavery was abolished. And so those actions, which it would have required delusion, true delusion to think would have succeeded. John Brown going into the woods to successfully roll up an entire revolutionary battalion that would, I guess, Amer the Northerners would just decide to like jump in halfway through and help them out. Or that, that the... Uh, that the, the seizure of the post office and fucking St. Stephen's Green was going to kick the Brits out of Ireland after 500 years. But what they were going to do is they were going to... They were going to change things. And honestly, the guy who I respect the most, obviously, for doing that was Connolly. Because Patrick Pierce was... He, he was born wanting to die. He was a Catholic psycho. He was a blood... He was like the worst kind of like... Uh, of, uh, of like Mel Gibson-style uh, mortification fetishist. Uh, the, kind, the kind of Catholic for whom life is a disgust, is a vile, and should be scorned and fled from. Uh, so, of course, he whistled to the fucking firing squad. Connolly was a fucking communist. Connolly didn't think he was going to heaven. Connolly didn't think he'd be sitting at the right hand of, of God, strumming on a fucking harp. But he knew that his people could, that he knew he couldn't stand to just live an entire life watching uh, as fucking England just squeeze the life out of his entire country. He would not have been happy to see what happened after, after uh, the Civil War, though, I'll tell you that. Man, place just turned into a fucking, a giant Magdalene laundry.
Ooh, this is a bummer. Uh, huh. Did entering the nuclear age of mass destruction in 1945 create a permanent technological steady state that human determination may never be able to overcome? Uh, I wouldn't say, if that's true, it wouldn't just be the nuclear bomb. I would say it would be the nuclear bomb, the uh, combusting engine, and the internet together might have done that. But here's the thing. It might have done that, but we can't know it has any more than we know we live in a simulation, right? Because it, won't, it'll, it, it could only be validated in retrospectively. We can't know. So just like with the, the, the uh, question of if we're in a simulation, you have to act as though you aren't because it's the only option. So you have to act as though we're, we can overcome uh, technology. We have to act that way, even if we can't, just like we have to act like we aren't in the matrix even if we are. Because there is no alternative, and that isn't even being snarky. It's a function of being a human. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's the Quidzach Haderach. The internet makes people think that they are, because it gives that illusion of total, uh, total information. Because if you, if you really interrogated people, they would admit, sure, I know that I don't really know anything. I just know what the internet tells me. But you, nobody acts that way. People do not act like that. People act like they have been able to glean enough of the real, uh, uh, the real terrain of reality to, to grasp like the nettle of, of truth and see backwards and forwards through the prism of history. You can't. You can't do it. None of you can. And if people say they can, they are literal frauds. They are fucking charlatans. But that doesn't mean you can't act. You have to act. But that has to be. That only comes from reacting with the world. It cannot be wish cast through the internet. It cannot be reasoned with. So many people online basically play both sides of a chess match and then say, "Okay, this is what's going to happen." No, you have to play the opponent on the act- in an actual match. You can't assume what their moves are going to be. And that's how people act on when they talk. Like, if somebody says, oh, it's just going to end with uh, Robocops everywhere. They have played the chess match ahead and have decided how everyone's going to move. They might trust that that's true, but you're a sucker if you do. I'll tell you that. Uh, somebody's saying Marx did what I'm talking about. Yeah, but Marx is one of the most one of the singular geniuses in human history. He's a top time all time brain. You're not. I'm not. You can't assume you are. He could do that because because he had the commitment to it, and because he got enough reinforcement from the world around him to make him think he was on the right track, that he was able to. Doing all that shit on the internet, you're not struggling the way he did to do it. You don't have fucking, you don't have to stay up in your little, uh, uh, in your little garret with a with a fucking lamp on, uh, covered in pustules. You haven't eaten in a week. You gotta write another letter to fucking Engels for him to send you twenty pounds. Uh, you're hunched over. No, you're in your gaming chair with air conditioning on, and you're fucking cruising the web, and you're not even doing the work. Are you in the fucking? Uh, are you, in, are you in the British Library pouring over the blue books of parliamentary inquiry? No, you're fucking breezing. You're looking at posts. I, you've read 10,000 posts. That doesn't make you marks. And it's not just because he was smarter than you. It's because he was willing to suffer. He was willing to do things that weren't fun to get there. You're only doing fun things. You're eating candy for dinner. We're all eating candy for dinner on here. If you, if you could do this, if the, if the meager outcome of your posts and your ideas about politics could sustain you in a fucking, uh, uh, in an attic without air conditioning, writing for 10 hours at a time under lamplight or whatever, then okay. I would like to see what you have written. But if you're doing it in the comfort of a, of an, of a life that is otherwise so alienated that it's the only way you can even find meaning, then I bet they're dog shit. Sorry. 
Because Marx did not do what we did because he did not have a computer. He did not have air conditioning. He did not have a checking account. I mean, he didn't have a credit card. These things mean things are different. Like, the conditions of life change the thoughts, change the, 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 the vocabulary. So direct comparison across time is impossible. And of course, the, the two quote is, you're on the internet right now, and it's like, you got me. I'm scared. I'm just one guy. I have to measure my commitment against my desire to maintain my comfort. And I'm probably, and I definitely wanting, I'm wanting of where I would want to be ideally, as we all are. But I have to actually look at it. I can't, I can't go in here, I can't dive in here to try to uh, uh, escape from that feeling. Because, to quote the Bible, the wicked flee when none pursueth. You're going to chase yourself across the internet to try to escape from that feeling. And eventually you're going to have to act in order to, to deal with it. Or you're going to have to further uh, delusion, like, delu delude yourself. <sighs> All right. So uh, anybody else got another historical question here? Am I mad? I try not to be mad anymore. I actually, you know, when I get mad like this, I'm really not talking to anybody on the internet. I'm really yelling it past me. I'm yelling at the me who wasted a lot of time trying to do all the things I'm describing and just got felt worse and worse over time. <laughs> so that's why I'm, I'm like, oh God, you fucking idiot. You were such a fucking idiot. That's really what it comes down to. So I'm not really mad at anybody but me. Uh, but the thing is, I have to forgive myself, uh, and everyone has to forgive themselves too, because if you're too filled with self-loathing, you can't, you can't do anything. I'm not a Finnish Civil War buff. I didn't know such a thing existed. I wonder if they have reenactments. That'd be funny. I don't think of my Satori moment is wearing off. I think that it's being reinforced at every point. Uh, Mexican Revolution. Uh, Pearlstein, I've said Pearlstein doesn't like me. He just doesn't like the show because we're rude to his friends. I mean, that's... And he's, like, he is constitutionally a liberal... Uh, he, he has a lot of faith in America's uh, political institutions, which is honest, because he is a political historian. Like, he doesn't really do, uh, he doesn't really do material analysis. Uh, like, when he talks, he, he talks about Nixon, uh, and it's almost entirely in the context of Watergate and stuff, and very little about Bretton Woods' system breaking down, and, and you know, in his book about Reagan, not a lot about, not a lot about Volcker and stuff. It, it's all kind of just seasoning. Uh, so he has a lot more faith in, like, political processes determining outcomes. So that, you know, and that means that he's really good at writing about him because he does the work and he's, he's got the nuanced understanding and, uh, and he's done the research. So they're, always, they're very fun to read and they'll, tell you, they'll teach you a lot about how politi politics functions, but not really integrated into, uh, like, a broader material uh, analysis. And that's fine. That's how most people are. Most people are only going to get a partial partial description of any historical process. I mean, my God, of course. Uh, so they're very useful to that end, but I think that because of that, he doesn't like our rudeness, and he also, he's a guy who gets published in a lot of the magazines whose writers uh, we have made fun of, and who get mad at us, and have blocked us on Twitter, and probably have complained to him at, uh, at, uh, at parties about us. And he probably was like, ah, oh, why, why are these people so truculent? So that's too bad. Vian Zapata, man, that was something. Mexican Revolution. Uh, there's actually a book by that name, Vian Zapata, by uh, Frank, by Frank O'Neill, I think, is his name. 
It's pretty good. I read it when I was a kid. Uh, I mean, the revolutionary dynamics of the 60s failed due to their class character more than anything. I mean, it was a middle-class uprising of middle-class students, people who literally didn't even have jobs yet. People who weren't even integrated. They, they, they hadn't even been got pop, bought off with like professional jobs or whatever at that point. They, they were just exogenous to the economy. So that's bad. Uh, I mean, the problem now is, is that there's a similar uh, exogeny here just because there's less necessary work being done, as we now see. <laughs> um, I mean, if you can, if you can have 20, 30% of the population stop working overnight and things just keep moving, then that does undermine the ability to, to strike capitalism at uh, vulnerable points to cause it to uh, potentially stop functioning. Uh, abolition of police unions. Okay, now that's interesting. Because, um, yeah, I think uh, police abolition, I do think, is, is, is kind of childish. I understand why people feel the need to, to have it as a, as, a, as a totem, but realistically, it's obviously not the, the beginning of any real uh, demands. Police unions are, are different, but at the same time, it's difficult to say everyone in America should get you know, uh, collective bargaining except one group of people. Uh, I, like I said on the, on this show before, I think maybe radically limiting what unions can negotiate on uh, would be good. Like I said, not allowing them to uh, to resist something like a residency requirement or civilian oversight. Uh, or taking their fucking guns away. I, I still don't know what community-based policing is, man. I still all this stuff when he it ends up like boiling down to either it's cat music like banging pots and pans in front of somebody's front room for littering or or I don't know what I think you, you, we have not yet reestablished enough of a, of a communal relationship with each other to allow that kind of thing to do anything other than eventually be alienated and abrogated to specific groups of people and then you're back to having the cops. You have to recreate a social fabric for anything like that to work. It, it emerges from a new social fabric. It, isn't, it, isn't a, it, it doesn't create one out of whole cloth. Uh, I would say it doesn't compromise union negotiation more broadly because a lot of those things aren't things that other unions care about. Like the uh, postal workers union don't care about getting able to carry guns or whether or not there's civilian that, that there's some sort of oversight for them for their for the for if they did something fireable it's just what they would do for fireability is different they don't have a right to kill people Programs like COINTELPRO and MKUltra never ended. What are they doing now? <laughs> That's something I've thought a lot about, and it's scary to consider. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's the big what if. Like, what if this all... Because we talked about this on QAnon, me and Will. There was that article in The Atlantic by that woman who, when she was a teenager, believed in Illuminati stuff and now doesn't. And she has this paragraph where she acknowledges, yeah, there were things like MKUltra and, and uh, whatever, but... But the thing is, she never talks about what happened at the end of any of those. They get found out years later. Nobody ever gets put in jail. No, none of the agencies to carry them out stop being funded. Nobody gets more accountable. So why would anything change? We get this fantasy of like, ah, the fact that it was discovered 10 years after it happened through a limited hangout means that, that it was stopped. I don't know. I don't like thinking about that one because that's another one where... If, it, if they really did perfect, uh, perfect the gumbo, uh, then we're all dancing to their puppet tune and we ceased to be, uh, to even have a, a delusion of independence uh, or, or of a, even our free will was compromised beyond, beyond reckoning, beyond saving. But same thing with everything else. You have to assume, you can only operate from the assumption that's not true.
at every point. It's like, yeah, this sucks. It sucks not knowing. But it's the not knowing that makes you act. It's, it's the not knowing that, that pushes you through the doorway. Because you have to make a leap of faith. That's, that's where human consciousness emerges from. Kierkegaard. Do I actually believe in free will? Free will is absolute in the subjective sense. You are free completely, but your actions are completely and fully determined. It's just that that doesn't matter because you don't know how. You can't see everything that is leading you to your decision. You can only sense even vaguely a few of the almost infinite Specific, in, uh, specific in events and encounters and, and uh, influences that led you to make a decision. You can only, you're only vaguely aware of a handful. So that means that that ignorance is the degree to which you operate from free will. Because you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. You don't know why you're doing what you're doing. So you, have to, so you, you can't use that as the way to do the next thing. Because you are ignorant of too much of it. That doesn't matter, but that also doesn't change the fact that outside of you, subjectively, as if your entire actions charted with a full understanding of, of the influences that went into them, no, they were 100% completely determined. No free will at all. But none of that means anything and has no influence on the subjective reality of free will. It's both. The, the girl in the Taco Bell, that, the girl in the uh, El, El, old El Paso commercial. The why not both girl is one of the great sages of human history because basically all of the binary questions that have bedeviled philosophy throughout history, the answer to all of them is both. The only question is how they fit together. I mean, the fact, that you, the fact that your body starts doing things before you even feel... The fact that your body starts uh, having... Starts doing things before you're even aware you're making a decision, which is true, means, yeah, of course, free will isn't true. But you don't notice that. You're not there for that seven-second seven delay. You're floating on the top of that decision-making pile. You're, you're, you're hissing with the steam out of the vents, and you have to make sense of it. You have to make sense of what you're doing. You have to retroactively uh, make uh, some sort of justification for it. And that's where morality comes in. That's where all of our, our moral, physical, psychic, and emotional senses come in. Uh, somebody says Sterner. I forget who it is, but somebody once said to me that they think that it's very funny that Sterner was so hated by Marx. And famously, Marx wrote more words condemning Sterner than Sterner ever published himself. Uh, but, but Sterner's description of humanity is, is man at the end of the process that Marx sketches out. Man at that point is Sterner's man. It's just that in under capitalism, we cannot be that. And we have to get out of it. And that means we can't act like that either because it's not in accordance with the world around us. Why do we hate North Carolina so much? I don't hate North Carolina. It's a weird question. Any, anything we've ever said against the South has been a joke because people from the South keep bugging us to tour there. Although, less lately. Ha! Although, honestly, at this point, I would love to tour anywhere. 
I would love to tour. Uh, I would go to the Antarctic McMurray Research Station and do a show just to get out of here. I would definitely like to tour Canada first because it's nice and cool. Track jacket's over there. I'm not wearing it every day now. I've, I've got a little too self-conscious about it. So if I don't know, if I, if the only way I can wear it earnestly is if sometimes I'm not wearing it. It's warm now and that's the other thing. And I, I was wearing it when it was cooler. Uh, I will say that um, somebody mentions all the Confederate statues that have been pulled down. Uh, I do think that I was always a little disappointed by those protests that were fixated on removing the statues because that is literally a symbolic issue. Uh, and more importantly, none of them, very few of them actually succeeded at removing any of the statues. But now, with a broader... Uh, uh, more challenging critique that actually hits at significant structures like police interactions uh, with urban areas, those fucking things are going down, getting pulled up like mushrooms. Like, what? What? How about this? How about we get away? And it's like, shit! We didn't even say anything about the Confederate, Confederate statues. Of course, allowing that to be satisfactory is wrong, but it's amazing the kind of symbolic uh, bonuses and side effects you will get as knock-on effects of a, of a, of a broader and more a challenging and a sustained critique of, of a social order. Debt Jubilee, obviously. Uh, I said it, Michael Brooks said it on his show that I was on on Tuesday, and I agree completely. Wholehearted, we need a Jubilee all across the board. Debt, obviously, all kinds. Uh, and then even the psychic debt of the internet. All the, all the dead weight of our old opinions, you know, just so that we could shrug them off. And of course, oh, there are going to be liars and mountbanks who fraudulently uh, uh, get acknowledged. Get, no, no, that guy's bad, though. These people are bad. They don't deserve redemption. Okay, though, you, they get the jubilee. You give them the jubilee. If they're still bad and they still act in bad faith, then you can condemn someone. From a position of understanding, not through, not by everyone just fighting the ghosts of each other. Someone said my beard is lame and they want a jubilee. I mean, lame is weird. Uh, it's mostly from laziness, but sure. Fine. Just don't say it again. How about that? See, there you go. Absolved. Everybody who's said anything bad in the past, I'll absolve them. But that makes a responsibility going forward to to uh, honor people's faith in you for giving you the benefit of the doubt. And then if you don't, at that point, you will be right, you can be righteously rejected. All right, this will be my last question. Uh, someone says, do you feel like people are focusing too much on the term grill-pilled rather than actually what's being said on these streams? I mean, to the degree that anyone is focusing on it as a... Uh, as, as one, a call to not caring about anything that's happening around them, or as a meme, then yeah. I mean, that's inevitable, though. 
I mean, I can't sweat it too much. I can only say what I can say and hope that some of it filters through the bullshit, the, the giant baffles of bullshit uh, that separate everybody from everybody else online. Uh. All right, guys, I'm going to go. Uh, but there will be a grill stream soon. First n nice day. We're going to do it. I'm very excited. Bye-bye.